There is a place where fears and fantasies get weighed with substance alone. Legends and lores are examined in fresh light. Conspiracy theory meets conspiracy fact. Abandon your defenses. Embrace the possibilities. Step beyond the threshold into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ronto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Richard Dolan, Jeff Mudgett, also, not to mention Suzanne Taylor's segment, Outside the Box, a brand new segment on our show, uh, one of my new favorite segments to listen to. Check it out. We also have Michael Clean joining us and much more. So stay tuned. We're going to start off with Jeff Mudgett right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We'll be right back. Got lost in a kerosene sun. I'll make it back before the daylight comes. Time is short and time is swift. Gotta focus who I spend it with. Wait for signs and wait for maps. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts, Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp, Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights, 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds and Other Realms. With us today we have Jeff Mudgett, author of Bloodstains. How you doing, Jeff? Uh, perfect this morning, John. Thanks for this opportunity. I've been excited about it for a long time. Great talking to you. I met you at the Chicago Ghost Conference for all of 30 seconds there. We were both kind of busy. <laughs> no, it was, that was a great time. I, uh, I got to meet so many new people, you one of them, and um, it uh, broadened my uh, horizon and uh, helped me uh, with the book uh, tremendously. So uh, for people that don't know about your book, why don't you just start it and tell people what it's about? Well, uh, Bloodstains is a, uh, it's a complex story, and I, I often start by telling people it's a story within a story. It, it has adventure, um, it has history, it has paranormal, but mostly it's a psychological thriller about one man's search for self after discovering something at 45 which would shock all of us if uh, if they had been placed in my shoes um if you if you want me to i'll just step right into what that event was yeah go ahead just because for some people they might not have a clue what the book's about or anything okay when i was about 45 years old and the book starts off like this it's about i talk about my grandfather and my relationship my grandfather's name was bert he was a stoic uh, man, he was an engineer at the Pacific Gas and Electric plant in California. Um, very intelligent, very logical, and I hated him. Uh, he was a man that would go fishing on the weekends. I loved to fish. I had an obsession with fishing when I grew up as a boy. He never invited me once. Every time I'd see him go down the road with his fishing gear, it would gr- this rage would would broil in my stomach. That's too bad. <laughs> 
he maybe yeah he maybe said three words to me my whole uh, childhood. Uh, so at 18, I, I moved on. Uh, he was not a part of my life. Loved my grandmother, but he was not a part of my life. So if I could go see her when he wasn't around, that's what I did. Well, about 45 years old at a family, when I was 45, at a family dinner, my grandmother had been doing a genealogy study because she was convinced we were related to the great General Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Every family's got someone like that. <laughs> Isn't it? It's, it's, you're exactly right. And she put a lot of, and she put a lot of money into this thing. Uh, um, well, the experts came back with their report and uh, kind of whispered in her ear that some things are better left left sleeping. So they say, <laughs> sleeping dogs. And uh, when she asked them why, she said, "Well, uh, you uh, were not related to General Robert E. Lee, and in fact, it was a criminal." Uh, infamous criminal, maybe the greatest criminal of all time. Well, so that shocked her. She decided to quit that. Uh, my brother at this dinner party brought this, this thing up. My grandfather's sitting at the head of the table. You can see him go white as this conversation goes on. And as my brother reveals to the family that we are related to this Herman Mudgett fellow who was hung in 1896, my grandfather stands up at the table, slams his chair back into the wall. The painting falls down behind him. I can see it like, as crystal as, as yesterday. He screams at the entire family that that name will never be mentioned in this house again. And he points at me, me, not the rest of the family, <laughs> and then storms out of the room. And I can remember my grandmother looking at him to me and like, why is he pointing at Jeff? And you could tell he hadn't told her about this secret in his family either. So, as it turns out, uh, he had known his whole life that we were related to this murderer, and he had kept it a secret even from his wife. That's, that's interesting. Of course, I mean, he was such a well-known murderer, too. You might not have wanted to told your family about it. That's right. And the family back uh, the century moved from Chicago and New Hampshire to California to get away from the stigma. Well, as you might imagine, I, I became obsessed with knowing who this thing was. It, uh, it was like a grain, a grain of sand, irritating all the time. So I went and researched everything I could find. And, and there's 20, 30 books about H.H. H. Holmes, who was also known as Herman Mudd. The Devil in the White City, the great Larson wrote that sold two and a half million copies. Um, depraved, tortured doctor. I mean, some great doctors in many movies. Hollywood's made many movies about this. They don't come out and say H.H. H. Holmes, the movie. Silence of the Lambs. I mean, that is the character. They oh. used H.H. H. Holmes for Anthony Hopkins. Oh, my God. You mean that's how bad he was? That that was his character? That's him. Holy crap. Oh, only <laughs> multiply it by 10. Oh, my God. So, so as I learned more and more, you started to feel this pressure on on your psyche about, well, think about it. Say you're, you're 45 and you don't, you don't have anything in your background, your family's a pure family. All my my father's a hard worker. My grand, my uncles, my my brothers, my cousins—they're all good people. Well, all of a sudden, we have this thing. And great, you know, and great great grandfather. What I, what I do to help explain it to people is my grandfather's grandfather. So all of a sudden, you wake up in the morning and you start thinking, "Wait a minute, what am I? Who who, who am I? What self am I? If this thing." This most evil thing that may have ever lived is why I'm here. His conscious decisions are why I'm alive. That's and if deep. he hadn't been this evil thing, I wouldn't be here. What does that make me? What does that do? What does that change in my head and how I think about good, 
bad and evil. That, that's pretty intense, actually. Well, and that's what that's what was in my that's what really happened to me. And at uh, forty five, I quit my work, quit my sold a company. Uh, I needed to find this out. Nothing else was important. I uh, treated my family poorly. I did not give them the concentration and attention they deserved, and I went off on this tangent. Well, as anyone knows that studies this thing, this H.H. Holmes, the story hasn't hadn't been told. These authors that had wrote these books about them had barely scratched the surface. This is a man of immense mystery, and the deeper I got, John, the more came up. We're finding incredible things in American history about who he was and what he had actually done. Well, we started, uh, the more I dug into it, the more people would come up with information for me. And what was most prevalent was this theory, this chance that he was also Jack the Ripper. Now, that's intriguing. And that we're, we're talking, what, 1890s, somewhere in that general area now, right? Well, the Ripper was 1888, okay. which, which uh, made uh, Holmes would have been 27 years old at that time. I, I skipped a part. Let me go back a little bit. When my grandfather died, he was a wealthy man. He left property and money. Uh, nothing for me, which is fine. I, did, I wouldn't have wanted it anyway. One day, my father came uh, about four or five years after, after my grandfather had died and uh, said, uh, you know, there was uh, a paragraph in the will, and um, I forgot to get to it, but uh, he wanted you to have his fishing tackle boxes. So I said, okay. And there were a couple of old World War II ammo boxes that he had turned into fishing tackle. So, you know, not being interested in the men, they sat over my garage for a, for a few years. And then one day when I opened them up, they were meticulously organized with his lures and reels and, and tools for fishing. And I scattered them over the garage and looked through them. And on the bottom of one, there was a compartment with a lock. When I opened it up, and that's what the story Bloodstains is about, there was a diary in the bottom, too. And these diaries were from the killer. And my grandfather had had them all his life. And he had saved them, not showing them to anyone, and then given them to me after he died. And that's what Bloodstains is all about. And reading through the words of the killer as he committed his evil across America and the world, really, because he, he loved to travel, too. Well, that's an amazing story in itself, actually. That's, that's truly amazing for your grandfather to do that. Well, you finally thought you were getting your, your fishing stuff, and instead you get the biggest murder hit mystery ever. I can, you know, you hit, you hit that right, because I can still remember my mom. I can still remember my mom telling, you, telling me, honey, that was his way of inviting you fishing finally. Yeah. And, no, it wasn't. It was what was in the bottom of those boxes that he was... Uh, passing on and uh he he knew i was the one that he wanted to have the family secret so you've actually well, got the diary of the the murderer then or i mean did they say who it is in this you know oh yeah oh yeah and that's what the story's about those books and exploring whether they're true or not okay. and uh determining whether what is said in them has anything to do with history and reality or not or just made up and as i went through them the historical facts that came out, we would go explore. We would go um, make sure what he said was true. And it, and it took four or five years, John. And um, as I, I, I almost hate to say it because it, it's terrible stuff, uh, every aspect of them that we've gone and researched or that I believed was in the diaries, we found to be true and we're working on proving them. And like going back to that one point, one was about him being in London in 1888 that summer 
and killing prostitutes in the Whitechapel district. Yeah, well, it does sound a bit like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> oh, his, it, you know, his his uh, characteristics are so similar. Um, the more we dig into this, we uh, we uh, we've got quite a bit of stuff from Scotland Yard and um, from a lot of experts, Londoners. It's amazing to see when you go on Google and you and you tap in Jack the Ripper, you can get I think it's 150, 160,000 hits a month still. The world is still fascinated with the subject, especially Londoners. They almost consider themselves the guardians of the mystery because when I first started bringing up that he was, there's a possibility that he was the Ripper, they they thought it was foolish uh, nonsense. Yeah, silly American couldn't be Jack the Ripper. Right. So, you know, I put all the circumstantial evidence together. There's a chapter in the book about how he could be Jack the Ripper. And about three months after we, we, uh, we uh, independently published the book, I had a fellow named Mark Potts come to me. And he says, uh, you know, Jeff, I've been doing research on Holmes being the Ripper for about five years now. I've written some articles about it. And I want you to know that... Uh, We've taken the two Jack the Ripper letters, mm-hmm. and he said we've we've uh, given them to the expert that the British Library recommended, the handwriting expert, and she's going to compare those two letters with the memoirs Holmes wrote while he was in prison awaiting being hung. I said, well, that's cool. And then he showed me the credential list for, credential list for this expert, and she's amazing. And like I said, recommended by the British Library. Well, about three months ago, she came back with her conclusions that it was the same. The handwriting was the same. Oh, that's cool. So now, instead of just circumstantial evidence, you have someone with direct evidence showing that these handwritten letters that the world knows as the Ripper letters, and there's still people that that um, claim that they weren't written by the actual killer necessarily, same as these memoirs that Holmes wrote when he was in prison. Comparison of the handwriting doesn't necessarily say that he was the one that held the knife, but it proves that Holmes was, was in London at the time, and had intimate knowledge of some of the facts of the killings. Well, all of a sudden, instead of fighting that Holmes was the Ripper, it forces those those detectives in London to start reaching down a little deeper to say, you know, here's a guy that killed hundreds, maybe thousands in the States. He loves to kill the same M.O. He was in London at the time. Now, for us to argue that he wasn't the killer starts, starts to sound foolish. We then went and researched the pathology reports for the the prostitutes that were murdered by the Ripper. And I found it fascinating that these reports stated that, listen, this couldn't have been an amateur. The way these organs were removed from these women in the dog within four or five minutes had to be a medical professional, probably a surgeon with incredible talent. So now you're into Holmes being a doctor, being a surgeon, being in London. Then we went to the University of London and established that. And they had records of an American being in London that summer trying to sell them skeletons. If you read Devil in the White City or Bloodstains, you'll see that one of the ways Holmes made a living, besides insurance fraud with the people that he murdered, was selling skeletons to medical schools across America. And his were known as the most pristine for obvious reasons. He would kill a young woman. Probably the freshest ones, definitely, right? (laughs) You know, there's no doubt about it. His were the best. And stripped the flesh off the bones, and uh, they had no nicks or scars or any any, um, any, uh, abscesses, and um, he had quite a business going. Well, we found out that the the medical school at the University of London had records of an American doctor trying to sell them a skeleton at the same time that the killings were going on. Well, put all that together, and then 
read his diaries about him being in London. And, and there's not much about anything about him killing prostitutes during that time, but it wouldn't have been an exciting moment for this man, John. He, you know, he killed so many here in the States. Um, I don't even know if it was a diary entry for him. But, you know, all of a sudden now we've got uh, a lot of material on him being uh, a ripper and uh, we're going to uh, keep working on improving. That's absolutely amazing. And uh, his, in, he had a home built in Chicago just for, for doing this, right? Didn't I hear something about he made his own little quote-unquote murder castle, I heard it called? You know, maybe one of the most incredible things about the story is the murder castle when you remember the the world's fair was in chicago in 1893 i believe uh, we have a timeline on our bloodstains facebook page with the exact dates if someone's interested but i think it's 1893 holmes moved from new hampshire and uh new hampshire out to and michigan out to chicago he was fascinated with the uh the possibility that the fair was going to be in chicago and all these many thousands of people were coming from all over the world to visit chicago in the fair he knew it was a perfect moment for him to take you know practice his uh, evil evil it's, doings it's a killer smorgasbord it's like a lion <laughs> on the savannah in africa with a herd of gazelle he that's the way he thought so what he did was he went to the junction grove john where the train came out of downtown chicago and then took the, the 90 to the lake where the fair was going to be he it's a long story how he got the piece of property but he bought a piece of property at that junction and then began the construction of his pharmacy slash hotel it obviously wasn't known as the murder castle back then it was a history has named it that um it was a beautiful building it took two or three years for him to complete and in the basement down below was a medical laboratory slash torture chamber with everything you can imagine that you've ever seen in a hollywood horror film acid baths the kilns stretch racks um uh, everything he needed to kill, torture, remove organs, sell skeletons, um, and conduct his business of murder. Um, the most evil, maybe maybe not Auschwitz, but the most, to me, the most evil place ever constructed by a human being on the earth. And you wonder why Grandpa didn't say nothing. You know, back, you know, John, back then there was, there was, they used to think about um, demonic possession. Yeah. They used to, they used to worry about, uh, descendancy you know, from things you don't know how he was brought my grandfather was brought up as a young boy you don't know what he was told by his mother and grandmother you know psychologically he was damaged by this thing i'm sure it, so it was so evil he just wanted to block it out of his mind i'm sure it's what it was get away from it yeah and uh, it didn't work so when the murder castle was completed holmes ran his pharmacy he stock the fairgrounds I think there were 40,000 people a day visiting it at one time. Um, they would have to come out on the trains. Uh, he had his little hotel there, the World's Fair Hotel, he called it. And he would attract the young ladies that had come from all over the country to visit the most incredible place, you know, the White City that Chicago was so proud of. And here was probably the worst, uh, the worst monster the, the had, that had ever lived. How long was his crime spree? Do you have a you know a timeline when you any idea you know when he started and how about the amount of victims or anything like that? Oh yeah, uh, in his diaries, uh, I write about uh, him starting killing as a teenager, and um, there is one sentence that always fascinated me. I have it in the book that uh, he had had a uh, a rough time because he had not killed in the last six days. Well, when you start running the numbers out on if you kill once every six days. 
and you live 20, 30, 40 years, you can, you can see the numbers. The experts have estimated he killed her way, way low and off. But um, he, he, uh, he was not, the more I read, uh, it's obvious to me, I'm not a uh, psychologist. There are so many people that try to fit monsters into these places, squares and circles. He was not the normal serial killer that everybody wants to uh, label so quickly he was just he was a monster there was no remorse um he never looked back he never worried about past always the future and always toward his ends when he went to medical school i i'm jumping around here sorry but when he went to medical school he had one of the highest recorded iqs ever measured he could write he could create he could invent he invented medicines he had patents of course the government took them off after he was supposedly hung he was Think about if he had used that brain and that ability for good instead of how that little twist in the brain that we still don't understand made him go the other way. On the cover of the book, I I mentioned uh, one of his most famous quotes on the cover of Bloodstains is, I was born with the devil in me. He has been with me ever since. That about sums up what he thought of him himself and his life. You think that might have been possession or something? I know you can't tell, but I mean, is there any thoughts on that? Do you think he might have physically been possessed or just playing crazy? You know, it's that gets into um, aspects of belief. I, If you believe in God, then there is. it's very easy for you to make the next step and say that he was the devil. We'll, we'll talk about it. A uh, uh, paranormal episode that I was involved in when I was exploring um, the remains of that murder castle. But before, I was not a believer, and I would have never. I would have laughed if some if someone had said this man could have been the devil. But afterwards, there's uh, there's a part of me that when you continue reading and discovering the abnormal things he was involved in, the supernatural things, there's there's a part of me that uh, can very easily fall over into believing he was the devil. He he was uh, pure. Well, in the book. Uh, we, he and I, when I was, uh, my, the book uh, becomes more a psychological obsession on my part and my trying to escape from the plans he had for me. Uh, we have dialogues about God and the devil and possession and uh, life. Mm-hmm. And um, I, think, I think your listeners will be interested in going through those um, dialogues that we had, possibly during uh, one of my seizures. I'm, I'm epileptic or not, and uh, we talk about uh, the, the question you just raised. That's interesting. So, I mean, this is an amazing story. Like I say, I haven't read your book yet. You're sending it to me, but I haven't read it yet, and th- this is just amazing. I found out that of all the, the authors that have written about him, none had actually, well, their books were all centered around this murder castle place. None had actually gone to visit the site. It. Today, it's a United States post office in Inglewood at uh, 63rd and Wallace in Chicago. One of the chapters in the book is about my friend and I, Kim Estes, getting on the taxi, driving from downtown Chicago, going into Inglewood, which, as you know, by itself is, is an experience. <laughs> yes. I, I didn't, as an American, I didn't know places like that existed in America. And it was a horrifying to see we have. It was, I was ashamed of it. Um, the, we saw a policeman get out of his car in full SWAT gear to get a pack of cigarettes in, the, in a convenience store. Yeah, that's telling you something. 
the post office is a beautiful place, well maintained. The, the, we, we were talking with a couple of delivery persons outside in their trucks uh, loading up. Be- wonderful people, real responsible. Kim and I looked at each other like, well, maybe we've got the wrong place. This doesn't look like a murder castle, which Harper's Bazaar in 1943 was the most evil haunted place in America. Actually, they wrote, if there is a building with a ghost in it, this will be it. That, that was a great article they wrote. We, we walk up to the front entrance. Kim walks ahead of me. I walk in right behind him, and my chest is slammed like someone hit me with a two-by-four. The waves through the air, I can see them traveling through the building. It's, it's, uh, it's a horrifying. I'm actually having a seizure right there at the front door. My mind is flashing in and out from the way the building looked in 1893 to now. I can see the parquet floors. I can see the wood bars in the lobby uh, for, for the office manager renting rooms. I could see the pharmacy layout. I could see a man behind the pharmacy uh, desk, you know, standing there offering goods. And uh, I could hardly breathe. Kim grabs me, puts me over onto the uh, onto a chair on the side. They, bring, they rush water out to me. I'm trying to breathe. Slowly, it dissipates, and we come back to life now. And, and I'm, I take some medicine. And I think, well, you know, I'm just, um, there's nothing unusual about what happened. I'm in a place that has a, a connection to me, and my brain had a short. So for two or three hours, and uh, Kim and I try to get the manager of the post office to allow us to go down into the basement. Well, they won't, they won't allow us. While we're trying this, employees are coming over saying, you don't want to go down there. No one goes down there. The door is locked. No, we don't use it. We all think it's haunted. There's strange things that happen down there. And I, and I swear, this is what happened. We finally get the custodian to get the, the, the manager to allow us to go down. We, move, we go through the post office, huge building, move these boxes away that I have blocking the door down to the stairway. Thanks, you got it we barricaded and closed, huh? It, it's, it's barricaded closed. And we had to crack the paint that they had painted over the door to the wall. It was in the federal building, I found out, if you have burglar alarms or, or alarms going off, they have to write a full report about each alarm. They got so tired of having to write reports about alarms down in the basement, which had professionals come in and try to determine whether they were rats or anything. They could never come up with an idea. They just they just shut the door off and, and turn the alarms off down in the basement. We go down, and it's uh, and like I told you, I'm going to send you that video so you can go through it. We go down, and it's, it's a messy basement hasn't been cleaned in, in a long time it's very uh, tight concrete concrete walls concrete ceiling concrete floor all the same color so it's uh that alone is very strange to go down in the dark with nothing unusual there were some strange uh doors that had been cut in concrete walls and then resealed i sent foia requests to the government about what what were they doing down there exploring in the side of the concrete you know, and making a wall into the old dirt. What, what were they looking for? I haven't gotten anything back yet. As we're down there, and the, the, the part your, re, your listeners have to understand is, this: the post office is a much bigger building than the murder castle would have ever been. Where the post office basement touches parts of the old basement and the, and the torture chamber, um, that's why when I told you when one day when this post office is closed, we want to excavate beneath the building oh, to determine i'd be very curious to see what's underneath that building well i think you know what i think it's a an interest for the nation as a whole think about it the government bought this land in 1937 the murder castle was still there it had burned in 1902 or 19 
303, once again, the timeline is there on our Facebook page. But not to the ground, as Larson said, in Devil in the White City. It was still there. It had been uh, repaired. The government bought it in 1937 for $60,000 removed it and put a post office on top of it, which by itself uh, is a mystery to me why we would have built it on that piece of land when there was others around it. But think about how our government could have built a post office. That's the symbol of America to me, the post office, on a place where so many souls had been tortured and were probably still locked in and had never been allowed to escape. So that fascinated me right there. When we, like I say, when, when they close it down, we want to excavate it. We've asked the uh, National Geographic and the Scientific American to help us make sure it's done professionally so that we can see what's really there. So anyway, when we went down, the, like I said, the basement was a messy place. We were walking around. Uh, I was feeling a little funny again. Uh, I, was having, um, I was hearing not voices but noises. And then we come upon two tunnels, and they're made from the original brick of the first building. We asked the custodian, what, what, what were these tunnels used for? He said, well, these were the tunnels that Holmes had built so that if the police ever came to the castle, he could go through these tunnels and come up under the street on the building across the street and escape, which shows you the way he thought right off the bat. He yeah. never had used it. He had a very he had good thought pattern. I mean, he wasn't dumb. <laughs> he was not dumb. And I said, well, why did the post office um, maintain these tunnels? And they said, well, we decided, uh, not we, the first post office um, uh, administrators decided to use these as a bomb shelter escape in case the post office was ever attacked by the the Russians or the Chinese, I don't know. But um, um, so they left them there. And he said, but no one ever went up inside. Well... My buddy Kim and I went up inside the tunnels, and I don't want to reveal too much about what we found. It's in the book, but uh, it's a fascinating part of the story. And um, so, either you're amazing, still- you're either amazingly brave, Jeff, or you you just don't understand the paranormal. <laughs> I didn't, and, and you know what? You remember at the, at the uh, conference, the ghost conference at the Portage Theater there in Chicago, when I explained. Um, before I went down in the basement, I, I was a non-believer, John. I didn't believe in ghosts and the silly stuff you guys talk about at the paranormal. I, I, I would have gone into any building in the world, not afraid. Um, when I came out of this basement in an hour, I was a full believer in what you guys all talk and believe about. I, I, there is something down there. I don't know how to define it. It doesn't have a shape, but it's an energy form and, uh, that's why I want you to go through this video I'm going to send you and see what you and your engineers can pick up. Yeah, I'd like to see, definitely. And you got to figure, Jeff, you're a blood relative, an actual blood relative of the man that killed all these spirits in this place. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's some bad mojo. Well, and John, tell me, what would these spirits think of when they saw me walking down there? They, uh, you know, paranormal is always a guess as it is. But, I mean, being that this was your great-great-grandfather, his blood... Who knows? They could, you know, actually know who you are and possibly even want to get you, you know, as a chance of a revenge for something your great-great-grandfather did. It's hard to say, but being an actual blood relative, I mean, my gosh, that that would be creepy. Is I'll get out. Yeah, when you go through the chapter, we I talk about that. But what I felt was not a revenge or an anger at me. What I felt more was a fear 
a fear of me as if as if they still had something to be afraid of even though they were spirits oh that's true i never thought of that angle i mean actually they realize your blood and they're they they feel the terror again they felt when your great great grandfather was doing whatever he was doing to them right and that is so you know what i would like to do john and i uh once like i told you once we're through with the uh the ripper aspect um, these things cost a lot of money and they take a lot of time so we're doing them one at a time uh, we can talk next about, you know, what we're going to do in Pennsylvania. But when we have the chance to, when the post office is closed and we have the chance to go down and uh, do some excavation, what I was hoping to do was go back down inside and try to stimulate uh, another seizure on my part. Because I would like to have someone there to record what I was seeing during the seizure. And like like my doctor told me, John seizures this is very normal during a seizure you have visions you hear voices um all the time epileptics so it could just be a medical condition and that's what i write about in the book but what i'd like to do is go down stimulate a seizure and have someone recording what i'm saying i'm seeing so that when we because there really is very little record of how the actual basement looked and how it's positioned and so that when it's excavated we can see if what I'm seeing or and recording down there during one of these seizures is actually the way it is. And wouldn't, wouldn't that be interesting? To, that would be uh, amazing. If you can arrange this, you got to let me know, Jeff, because I'm there with you. I'm gonna. <laughs> I want to be there. Okay. Okay. That's that's a deal. Um, because maybe it gives a little evidence as to it's more than just a medical condition. I'd love to try that. And it might be. It might be, John. That what I'm seeing is 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 is, is worthless. Is nonsense. Yeah, well, you never um, know, though. I mean, it's just one of those things. It certainly can't hurt. You definitely want to document something like that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. And that's, that's what a large part of the book's about. That's that's really, really intriguing. I mean, an amazing book. I'm looking forward to getting it now, my, my autograph version, which will be worth all kinds of money in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's in the mail. It's a, I, I mailed it yesterday. Oh, that's great. Uh, what's your uh, website and all your information as far as so we listeners can contact you? Plus, I'll, I'll be putting all the links on our Thresholds radio page, too. Oh, good. Uh, we're at bloodstainsthebook, in one word, dot com. And I'll tell you what, I don't do this for many, for many, but uh, because of uh, your friendship and all the help you're giving me, John, any of your listeners that state to my mailing manager that uh, they're friends of yours, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make the effort and give them a, mail them a signed copy. Oh, that's great. Um, or they can go to Amazon Kindle. I uh, we have the book on ebook, all this Nook, everything. But I re- I have I had some anger when we first published the book about how some of the big publishers are abusing the prices on the ebooks for people that you know maybe having trouble affording books these days in the, in our economy. So we made sure that our ebook is two dollars and ninety nine cents at Amazon. And now uh, you can't I, beat uh, that. No, I feel good about that. It's the price of a cup of coffee, and someone can enjoy some reading a, a book that may stimulate their thoughts well that's that's good plus it means you actually you, you care about your book you just want the information out there you're not being one of those money hungry people you know i'm not gonna lie about it it'd be fun to have that happen but uh i um the part of uh, when i first started i'm glad you brought that up john when i first started writing the book my family was angry that i would uh, do this why would you want to tell the world this is who we are why would you want to tell the world that he may be Jack the Ripper? You're sick. You're crazy. And I struggled with it, but I told them, I don't want to be 
the one who runs away from this anymore. I would rather show the world, yes, this is who we came from, but we prove that this is not what makes a human being. My family's, like I told you, good, honest, law-abiding people. They're good people despite this stain on our soul. And I'd, I'd rather tell the world that. Well, that's and true. That's, that's yeah. what, well, just because your great-great-grandfather did that doesn't make anyone else in your family bad in any way. No, and as a matter of fact, it makes them better, if you ask me. They, they persevered, and, and it's about, and it's about I, like I told you the other day, it's about a heart of darkness, that great book by Joseph Conrad, where all of us have the mind of a maniac, except we get through it. We all have a darkness. We all have evil thoughts, but we know when to turn them off and do the right thing. And, and that's, uh, that's what I want the book to be yeah, about. Some people don't have that boundary. You know, where no, you and I might possibly think about something. To them, it's perfectly normal to go past that point and actually act it out. That's right. And you know what, John? We all think about it. We all do. We have those thoughts. That's why we enjoy reading, reading horror or watching uh, you know, uh, Stephen or, King or movies. Or in my case, playing uh, video games. I love playing video games where you're snipers and stuff. I get out my frustration on, on people by playing video games. That's right, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know when to turn it off and to go back to normal life. And um, that's what the ending of Bloodstains is about, that decision that we all have to make. Mine was a little more obvious than most people have to make, but uh, we all do it. I, uh, so I told my family, now my family is 100% behind the book. They, uh, they agree, and they actually think it's pretty cool. Just imagine if after 125 years, John, the murder of Jack the Ripper is solved by Jack the Ripper's great-great-grandson. I mean, that, that's a historical. That's something that they're going to read, you know, hundreds of years from today. It's going to be actual history, which is cool as heck. And it's almost supernatural. It's, it's just weird, you know? Yeah, so, it is. Uh, it intrigues me. So that, that in Chicago, you said the post office is actually the location now, and that's going to be torn down? Is that what you said? It's, they're going to... Well, there's a rumor. There's a, well, as you know, our economy is, is uh, in dire straits, and there's a rumor that the post office is going to be closing a number of um, Locations. addresses. Right. Right. And uh, Englewood may be one of them, although I doubt maybe not because there are so many people that need jobs there, and you're, you know, you'd be, uh, right. be pretty rough. But um, if it is closed down, we're, we're going to uh, go full force and, and – um, um, demand that it be excavated um, scientifically so that uh, this is a part of American history. There, This was something that was extraordinary that may have changed many different things that, that we don't know about yet. It should and be done like a, like a crime scene. They should actually go in there and like they did a John Wayne Gacy and all that stuff and go through there and actually go through. Exactly. And, there, and as you know, John, there is no statute of limitations on murder. And there were hundreds of murders committed below that post office that haven't been solved yet. Those victims deserve more than just pouring concrete over a hole and then putting a car dealership up or something. Right, because you had said he had acid baths in there, right? So, I mean, there would be nothing but oh, skeletons, yeah. which would be very easy to hide, skeletons. There are skeletons and uh, maybe things that verify what I'm talking about in the book. About yes. Well, as you, re as, you read the, as you read the book, you'll see I make some claims about him after... He was supposedly hung that are astonishing. Um, some say crazy. Um, I think a proper excavation of that land might prove my point. That would be amazing. Yeah, I'd love to go there with you. It would be great. You'd be my <laughs> paranormal bait, the great-great-grandson. <laughs> bait, bait. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, whoops, yeah. I, I'm, I'm supposed to tell you that after we do it. I'm sorry. Never mind that. <laughs> well, I tell you, John, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but I want you to read. It's, uh, let's see here. Hold on. I want you to read, oh, chapter 25, 26. Okay. I want you to read that chapter because there is a description of what I felt like doing to the man next to me when I was down in that basement. And you might not want to go with me so closely. You know, to be honest, those thoughts are going through my head. I mean, even though you and I have become friends, i got to be honest. In the back of my head, I honestly thought something like that. You know you know what I mean? I know you're, you should be fine, but i got to be honest. It did go through my head. That that's And Bloodstains deals with that and that possession of I struggle with and thoughts um, from being the next in line, being the next Herman, uh, which for a time I thought was my destiny. And um, oh, that's sure. why uh, it's uh, it's in all of us. But like I said, it's just a little more obvious. Uh, so now I, I know when, when we do this, instead of bringing my normal paranormal equipment, I'm bringing a gun with me. <laughs> well, I, I fought through it. I didn't do it. I fought through it. <laughs> now, see, if great-great-grandfather could have done that. He did it with the blink of an eye. He was something else. Silence uh, of the was, Lamb was actually based on him, though. That That's just amazing. I never knew that. That character was based on him, not the book. Well, the yeah, character. the character. But, I mean, that that's like that's one of the creepiest things I remember in my entire lifetime was that character. I think back. If you'd have had to, if Anthony Hopkins was still that age, what a man to play H.H. H. Holmes in the movie. You know, DiCaprio gets to uh, Devil in the White City. They're supposed to come out with a movie next year, a huge blockbuster, 200 million bucks they're spending or something. That's the rumors. But uh, DiCaprio wants to do, wants to play the H.H. Holmes part. And uh, he'll do a fantastic job, an incredible actor, obviously. But can you imagine a younger Anthony Hopkins doing it in Silence of the Lambs role? Oh, my God. That'd be great. I know we're running low on time because you didn't have a latte, but I had another question. As far as, I mean, his name, your ex, his real name was Herman Mudgett, but where did he get H.H. Holmes from? Great question. He was uh, he had 31 aliases. Uh, oh, at least. you can never have enough. <laughs> yeah, at least. Um, that's the pro We're trying to track down which ship he rode from New York to Southampton on that summer of 1888. And we're, we're finding how to use so many names, it's almost impossible for us to lock that one down. Um, but he had a fascination with Sherlock Holmes. He loved that, that character, that role, and uh, he took the name Holmes. Oh, and that goes that correlates with Jack the Ripper pretty good too. Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper, London—that's all blending together quite nicely there. He was he was fascinated with that uh, London character. There's, there's an interesting part too when um, when you go to the Bloodstains Facebook page. We have a about uh, six years ago, Scotland Yard and the London Police did a composite. They had a composite drawing of what they think the Ripper looked like from the six eyewitnesses that said they saw him back in 1888. And take a look at it, and you put we put Holmes's face next to this composite, and you'll be amazed. The shape of the nose, the eyes, the ears, it's just too close. It's too too coincidental. Well, that's pretty cool. I still got that in my mind of going down in that basement <laughs> with you and having your head start to rotate and your eyes turn red. <laughs> You're not you're not gonna you're not gonna chicken out of me now, are you? No, I'm just thinking it's gonna be a terrible shame if I have to take you out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you know, you had to do it for mankind. It was you had to do the right See you and I might understand that, but the Chicago police they really frown on that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jeff. Well, it was absolutely great talking to you here. No, I had a great time. And um, uh, like I say, I, I enjoyed meeting you at the conference. And uh, we hit it off. And uh, the more we talk, the more uh, 
uh, our friends were becoming. I'm really enjoying it. You're my new creepy friend now. <laughs> Before you were just a new <laughs> friend. Now I'm always going to have that in the back of my mind, going somewhere with you and you clicking into great great grandpa. <laughs> Well, I, I tell you, we'll, we'll 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 get a drink and we'll chuckle about that one day, okay? Yeah, I know you're going to be in town in a while on a little secret project. We won't say what it is yet, but I know you'll be in town in a while. We're going to get together then. Can't wait. Okay, anything else I missed, Jeff? Anything you wanted to get? You know, one other thing, one quick thing for your for your listeners. Okay. After we after we uh, get this Ripper thing solved and move on to the next, we're going to go to Pennsylvania to the grave site that Holmes was supposedly uh, buried in after he was hung. Well, in the book, you'll see my theories, and one of the reasons I want that post office excavated so carefully is that his guard was hung in his place. The man hypnotized the guard and, through a number of tricks, was not hung. At that execution, he paid for Pinkerton guards to supervise him being laid in a coffin, concrete filling the coffin. Concrete. I mean, when have you ever heard that before? When have you ever heard that before? They dragged the, the, the coffin concrete coffin out with a mule train to this cemetery in Pennsylvania, pre-dug hole, dropped it in. That hole was covered in concrete. He made some comment to the judge about he didn't want grave robbers ruining his uh, presence and his eternity. The man had no concern whatsoever about his hydrocarbons after he was dead. He didn't believe in any of that stuff. What it was is, and my belief and what I want to prove, is that he knew if it was dug up and it was determined that it wasn't him that would have been the greatest manhunt maybe since Abraham Lincoln had been shot for John Wilkes Booth. He would have been found. There would have been no more trials. They would have killed him on the spot. That's that's for certain. certain. So he had this concrete vault made, which back then, think about it, that's pure. That, that, there was nobody going to be able to dig that up in a cemetery. He was off on a new life. I want to have that grave exhumed, the remains Pulled out of the concrete, however that's done. I don't yeah, I was just going to say, boy, you got a heck of a job trying to assume that. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's professionals that can do it. And I want to I donate some tissue. This is in the back of the book. I explain this. I want to donate some tissue and have a DNA na- analysis done on the remains and me, which should be able to prove if it's him in the concrete or not. That's, that's our next project. Oh, that's cool. I never even thought about that. I, I, I thought I heard that it wanted to be exhumed, but I thought that's because they wanted to try to match him with Jack the Ripper. But matching your DNA is an amazing idea because that's going to prove if it's actually from the family or not. That, well, no, that'll prove it's him. And uh, uh, I think um, it's the, I'm learning so much about DNA now that I didn't know before. It's not quite the conclusive thing we all think about from watching NCIS on TV. Yeah, it only takes five minutes on NCIS. <laughs> Right, it's not an easy thing, but my my expert tells me that it's pretty. He's pretty certain we can establish that it is either from the family or not. Maybe not Holmes or not, but from the family or not, which should be enough. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, we learned a lot here, Jeff, and I uh, say I had a great time talking with you. Actually, one of my favorite interviews to date. Well, thank you very much. All right, that was Jeff Mudgett. We'll be right back. You're listening to Threshold Radio.
TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit ufo Info.com. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. And right now we're going to play a clip from our live presentation at Star Rock a couple weeks ago. This is not heard of before. Richard Dolan had called in on a Skype conference and talked to our audience about many, many, many cool things. And I'm going to play that interview for you right now. Uh, now, mind you, the audio quality, uh, I did touch it up the best I could, but... You know, these live performances, sometimes it gets a little uh, rough and gritty, if you know what I mean. So uh, we hope you enjoy, and uh, here's Richard Dolan live at Star I'm doing a, a revision of AD After Disclosure, actually, with my co-author Bryce Table. We're uh, updating, doing a little bit of quick revision for a larger publisher, which I'll have that out probably uh, within the next week or two, and that'll be out of my hand. So then the other thing I'm working on is a short, not so short, I guess 300-page introduction to ufology, UFOs. But I'm quite excited about it. I've written nearly half of that, and that book will be done before the end of this year. I haven't even gotten a full title for it. I think it will be something like Ufology for the 21st Century Mind. I've really been trying to rethink in a fresh way, uh, the entire UFO topic for uh, an intelligent introduction. For someone who doesn't know anything about it, someone who's not reading this in 1970 or 1980, but something in 2011, 2012, modern era, an age of Facebook, YouTube, the, wow. you know, the, all the political stuff we're dealing with. Wow. How do we approach ufology and the topic of ET UFO in our own era? And I, broken it down and I'm, I'm happy with it. So that's coming out uh, in the next couple of months. Volume 3 of my Mondo history is in the works. I've written I've written a nice chunk of it. Well, let's say a comparatively to the whole book a small chunk. But a lot. It took a lot of work. So I'm, I know you do. That's, that is in the works. Yeah, well, I, I'm happy you didn't it. use Zen in any of your titles. What's that now? I'm happy you haven't used Zen in any of your titles. Well, here's the thing. On my shelf, right over here, I have quite a few Zen books. I'm actually really into Zen. Okay. And it's uh, if I have any philosophy of life, it probably incorporates Zen. Oh, there, Zen. Then I just triggered something in your mind, and... Possibly you may want to incorporate it then. <laughs> I incorporate, anyone who listens to uh, my lectures carefully enough, I think can get that idea. Oh, uh, a lot of the attitudes I have about this, how to approach this topic in a sane, non-crazy uh, way, I think they can sense that there's a Zen outlook there. So in this new book, there'll probably be... So what's new and incredibly, magnificently uh, earth-shattering uh, in the world of youth, 
mythology on your end of the uh, spectrum, put it that way. Okay, how about this? I haven't really investigated this, but I just got an email link yesterday relating to accusations about Richard Hoagland being not what he says he is and not being upfront or even honest about his work. I don't know how accurate these are. Here's what I know. Well, you know, um, uh, Colonel Alexander, your buddy John, has been saying that, uh, oh, oh not, no, not him, somebody else, who was it, that uh, said that uh, Hoagland, in fact, John was talking to Whitley Strieber about this, uh, that somebody, and it, and it may very well have been, um, oh gosh, the hold a pale horse. Um, Bill Cooper? Bill, Bill Cooper, yeah. Have made a, may have made the statement that uh, both Whitley Strieber and uh, Hoagland are just uh, ploys, you know, shills in, in the disinformation campaign. Well, Did you hear that I mean, one? Who knows? You know, you hear these things all the time. How do you, how do you prove it one way or the other? You can't. Except by looking at their, um, their output. You can't, but that's uh, interesting. Hoagland, of all people... Now, who said this? Cooper said this? Yeah, that was Bill Cooper, I'm pretty sure. And I always thought Bill Cooper was uh, was actually uh, what he was, you know, not, nothing like calling the, the pot, the kettle black. Well, exactly. Cooper Cooper was, uh, I, I really believe, I wrote this in my second volume of UFOs, National Security State. I personally think Cooper was tampered with. Uh, I, I do think that he had a legitimate UFO experience in the Navy back in the 60s, and he might have known a couple of things, but... There was something wrong with that man. Well, they fried him. I mean, you know, the thing is, you know, it doesn't take much to put you uh, through some serious uh, microwaves and cook a little part of your brain, and all of a sudden, yeah, you know, you're doing some crazy stuff. And um, uh, though he had some interesting things to say that was that were was also said by many other people, some stuff he said was just off the frickin' wall. I mean. And believe me, I live off the frickin' wall. So when somebody's talking crazy to me, my gosh, you're total fruit loose, well, you know? Cooper, the one last thing I would just say about Cooper is I, I don't dismiss the style altogether. The one thing that I, I have to say, when he came into this field in the late 80s, he was the first guy that I'm aware of to talk about the, um, I guess what we call the New World Order. The Bilderbergers, Cooper was all over that. The Council on Foreign Relations, these other groups that I personally feel are important. Yeah, I think he You're actually beat the, uh, David Icke to the punch on that, didn't he? By years. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Cooper really, I think, was the first guy who got any kind of press to be able to do this. And keep in mind, Cooper was able to do it. He made the scene right at the very beginning of the Internet era. We're talking late 1980s, before there was even a web yes, on the bulletin true. board. That's, that's absolutely Cooper correct. Cooper was getting his stuff out there, and really before him, I don't think anybody was, was talking about this and getting any attention. So you have to give him some credit, which I personally feel uh, he, he was on to something. But anyway, there's a lot of things wrong with him. To call Whitley Strieber... Uh, a disinfo artist. I don't know. There's there's issues that I will always have with Whitley's writing. 
he's a great writer, but you never really know how truthful what you're getting is. Well, he loves his fiction, and I think his fiction runs deeper than we may normally allow. Uh, uh, that's all I could say. Yes. Has he enhanced any of his stories? Uh, he may very I, I well can't. have. And for people in the audience, does everybody know who Whitley Strieber is? Okay, Communion? Yes, he's written many other books that, uh, um, a lot about vampires and werewolves. And, yeah, he's done he's, some great work on the UFO field, though. Oh, he's done a lot of great he's work. He's worth reading. Yeah, he's done great work, uh, Communion, Confirmation. Uh, his wife, by the way, Anne, she's done quite a bit, too. And did you know that Anne interviewed our good friend, uh, our good friend from uh, um, uh, Fredericks, Wisconsin, Sean and Robin, pertaining to their experience? And did you know right after that interview is when she had that horrible stroke? Who, who did she interview, Sam? I'm sorry? Do you remember Sean and Robin from, from Wisconsin? Yeah, I do. Okay, right after the, they, he did an interview with, actually, Ann Strieber did an interview with Sean and had that massive uh, um, stroke or whatever she yeah. had. Direct, right. Right after that. It happened right after that. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I just wondered right if they. Sean did it. I don't know. He had so many crazy things going on up there and some karma floated through the telephone or whacked or one. I yeah. don't know. I would not be inclined to think much of that, but no. But then again, what do you think about the uh, uh, the you know? Here we have uh, our good friend Glenn Mean sitting in the background from Star Team, and uh, he <laughs> he brought up an interesting point about NASA losing all their data and all of a sudden finding it in some weird places and footage as far as these Apollo missions. What do you? What do you take of that? Is it just poor management or, you know... Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. How do you lose all of the, the most important mission in human history, really? I mean, here and they you... Just let it, they yeah. just let it slide. It went away. Now, with this new uh, abandonment of, of, of NASA, so this always got me as far as some indication that something is definitely going on up there. Since all of a sudden we're abandoning NASA, uh, we're doing all this other crazy stuff going on, and the world is in disarray. I keep, it, I keep getting the feeling that something is about to take place that is going to change the, uh, uh, the way this place looks in a very permanent sense. Um, I have a lot of fear, and I think I've shared that with you. And yeah. have you found anything either way that could give you some indication uh, of either I'm being a Fruit Loop or, uh, which I, you know, I, of course I could say I could gladly be a Fruit Loop, but you know what I mean? Some indication? Yeah, I do. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that, Sam. I mean, I come across things that um, from people that I know and people I don't know that tell me, Bad, bad things are happening. On, on the other hand, look, um, we all know that generally speaking, our world is in is in a bad way. We're teetering on the edge of a infrastructure real infrastructure problem. I think it's quite possible. Oh gosh! Water and water and oil are are an issue, but are they going to be an issue in the next year or two? I don't think so. Uh, 
we just had the whole last year thinking that Elenin was going to end the world. And pardon me for saying this, but what a load of crap that was. I kept saying so all year long. All these people who signed on to this idea that we had Nibiru uh, just around the corner uh, based on not one shred of useful, rational evidence, in my opinion. And, you know, what's happened? Nothing has happened. And we went through this last year with the, the fake so-called blue beam event that was supposed to happen a year ago at this time. I like to call it, it buzzbait. Project buzzbait. In other words, this stuff is going on all the time. There, are, there is a flood of people out there that live to scare the shit out of the world. Yes. Yes, they do. They put enough of it I, I out there and throw it. people in different directions. There's a better, you know, we don't, we have enough to worry about rather than uh, fake things. Based on, it all has to come down to evidence. Yeah. Well, evidence down. points out that the Earth is in change, there's no doubt about it. The Sun's in change, going through, it's giving off energies that really cannot be they really don't well, the sun really goes understand through cycles, it all. Sam. Huh? The sun goes through cycles. This cycle, they're confused about. There's no doubt about it. It goes it through an 11-year cycle. I mean, the sun is 4.6 whatever billion years old. Now, the cycles, the cycles I understand, but what's being emitted is, is different. Did you know that? Check on that. In fact, I'll have to send you some information. So I don't know what's coming out of there being so different, but as we know and have an understanding of DNA, um, is it, how is it affecting us? Um, who knows? Will I wake up tomorrow being thin, six feet tall, blue eyes, well, and my planners more different cycles doesn't mean a whole lot to me at this point. That's not a scientific statement. I don't really know exactly what you mean by it. No, no, well, I'll send you the scientific stuff. I'll send you the scientific stuff, doggone it. I will. All right, that was Richard Dolan live in Utica, Starve Rock, Illinois, at the Illinois MUFON conference we had a couple weeks ago. Uh, Sam Maranto and Julia Maranto was hosting. Um, you know, I am a huge fan of Richard Dolan. I cannot wait for his uh, future work to be released. And uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Maranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-Info. Com. And now, Suzanne Taylor's Outside the Box on Thresholds Radio. Welcome back to Threshold and Other Realms. With us is Suzanne Taylor with another installment of Outside the Box. 
So what do you what do you got for us today? I know we last week we were talking about something about the dog knowing when the owner is coming home or something like that. Indeed, animals pets do know when their owners are coming home. Most particularly, dogs is the biggest uh, experiment that actually has lots of data on it that, that we could talk about. But we're kind of basically talking about Rupert Sheldrake, and um, he is the uh, would we say maverick biologist. Maverick maybe isn't a fair word because he's a real biologist. I mean, he's credentialed and degreed and what have you. But he's one of the rare people who is a um, acceptable scientist who is actually thinking outside the box. And in fact, it gets him in some difficulty with his fellow scientists who give him a hard time because he's really dealing in things that science doesn't have explanation for. And when science doesn't have explanation, it tends to get marginalized as if it doesn't exist. Well, mainstream science science is very picky about that. They do not go outside the box. And if it's outside the box, they either ignore it or uh, discredit it. Yeah, or they just don't include it in what is interesting to them or part of their uh, purview so that... They pay no attention to things like consciousness. Now, they wouldn't deny that consciousness exists. I know what the word is, marginalized. All of those kinds of things that are not observable under the microscope, able to be taken apart and put back together again, um, those things get marginalized to where they become less important. Uh, But in fact, maybe they're even more important, and they're certainly equally important uh, because we kind of run our world based on what science tells us is in the game, you know. So all of our laws and uh, interests and whatever are all heavily concentrated on the fields that science is designed for and is all about. And Rupert Sheldrake consistently is throwing ringers in that are not in the purview of science, but he's a real scientist. So he kind of devises unique kinds of experiments and ways of verifying things that are in the same vein as the way science works, but dealing with topics that science would never touch. Um, In fact, there was a terrible article about crop circles being I'm the crop circle queen. I know lots about crop circles. Uh, What on Earth is my movie for your listeners? And they can find it on cropcirclemovie.com. But he sent me an article from Nature Magazine, since Rupert's a friend of mine, I'm happy to say. And he sent me this article, he emailed me this article that he uh, cut and pasted, whatever, uh, from Nature Magazine. And I say cut and pasted because the public does not have access to Nature Magazine. I could not go on Nature Magazine and get this article. Oh, okay. Uh, You have to be a subscriber, and it's several hundred dollars a year to subscribe. It's not a magazine, per se. It's more like a journal. Mm-hmm. It's In England, it's the kind of, um, like the New England Journal of Medicine, which it, it's the place where the substantial, verifiable, scientific sort of things appear. And Rupert is a subscriber, and I'm not. And uh, so he sent me this absolutely horrible piece about the circles that was, it just made me sick, really, considering nature has such prestige. And yet they were publishing something. I think the premise of it was, well, we all know it's an art movement. Excuse me. An art movement. Made by people. We all know that. And then uh, this is the way the artists and the artists and blah, blah. Oh, no, no, no. We don't all know that. I tried to make a response to them, by the way. I, I, they would not receive me. But, but then, oh, they would not receive me. So I said, Rupert, 
can you send in this piece and can you say this is an ally of mine who's very knowledgeable about the circle, did this movie about the circle, and here's her response. Now, you know, any, any kind of thing that something puts out should be open to a response, right? Correct. Well, I guess they would be open to it from the people, from the scientists who subscribe to this journal, but of course they don't know anything to respond to. I couldn't, couldn't get my response in, so I said, Rupert, would you do me a favor and send it in for me? He said, you know, I'm really sorry, but I'm on such thin ice there already in terms of them listening to me that I just can't stretch that any further. Push <laughs> them right over the edge and they'll, they'll dump them out of there. <laughs> right, so I certainly understood that. But I'll just say one more thing before we get on to the animal stories that we're really here to talk about. I was so pleased watching TV a few years ago, and there was um, a program on PBS called, uh, it was a series called The Glorious Accident, and there was like a roundtable of eminent scientists. And this particular roundtable had Nobel Prize winners in it. I call them Nobel Prize winners. Maybe I'm off, but they're in that category. Freeman Dyson was one of them. Oh, okay. Stephen J. Gould was another one. I mean, these are the well-known names from science that are actually, you know, in their own ways a, a bit, I wouldn't say on the edge particularly, but high-minded. And, and, and they're, they're not uh, nasty folk that, you know, we have to uh, be oppositional to. Right. But at any rate, they're not as far out as Rupert. And he brought up the subject of homing pigeons on this program. And the fact that homing pigeons will home no matter what, no matter where you, what you do with them, where they, you know, whatever. And they do very odd things, like they put contact lenses on them with fog in them in some way, or they do things that are medical to them. They, they try to change their metabolism so that they won't go home. And then they do things like taking them to weird places or putting them in the dark or weird things they do to them just to try to disrupt this homing thing. Son of a gun, it does not disrupt. And of course, what this is testimony to is the um, what's beyond science. Science can't explain this. There's something going on in the uh, morphogenetic field, you might say, and that's Rupert Sheldrake's work. But I'll just, going back to this, then we'll go on to the morphogenetic field. These people who were sitting at the round table Boy, did they try to shoot him down. That was too much for them. It, obviously, it had to have some kind of scientific explanation. And they just tried every which way. Well, listen, if you did this, da da da, then, then they wouldn't go home. And Rupert would say, no, we did that. <laughs> and, then, and then they and they home anyway. So the kind of context of that is work that Rupert is famous for, although he didn't originate it. He did add wrinkles to it that no one had added before, and that had to do with this concept of morphogenetic fields. The hundredth monkey is the thing that all of us are very familiar with. It's been in uh, different famous authors have used it and written books about it and what have you, and how exactly true it is, because the story gets a little changed every time. It's almost like the game of Whisper, you know? Right. (laughs) At the end, it's different. So the different books have had different takes on it. But the, the idea being that... If a certain critical number, and they called it 100, which is just a fanciful number, nobody's stuck to that. But the idea being that if a certain number, uh, people, monkeys, whatever, adopt a new pattern of behavior, 
For no accountable reason, that pattern of behavior spreads to people who have not learned it themselves, but just picked it up in kind of the air. And what Rupert added to that was non-locality, if that's the right way to talk about it, that no matter where in the world you were, it wasn't in a limited kind of space where you were in proximity in any way to this new learning pattern that had been established. And that anywhere, once this pattern came into the grid, like there is a grid and the whole earth is in the grid, who knows, maybe the whole universe. Right. We don't know about the universe, but we know about earth. So once a new pattern comes into the grid, it, can, it will pop up elsewhere. And one of the experiments that was done under Rupert's aegis or during his time frame or what have you was with rats, where uh, there was some learning in a laboratory that rats in a maze were actually taught or induced or whatever, and they, and they mastered the maze. And then what was, became evident was that all over the world, rats were able to quickly learn at where perhaps it took the first group of rats an hour i don't know i'm making that up whatever time right. it took five minutes after that it took one it's like the pattern came into existence and it spread everywhere it's like there's a psychic uh, connection between the entire rat population right so that was you know the monkey story is a little bit of fanciful uh it, it it's hard to pin it down to exactly what happened and did it happen that way whatever but this rat thing was a real experiment, and it kind of verified the 100th monkey thing. And so now, you know, here we are talking about these peculiar things where pets are, now it's a different kind of thing. It's not uh, pets learning something one place and showing up another place, or even homing pigeons, you know, where there is a, uh, whatever that is. You know, on that homing pigeon thing, actually, I, I recently read something. Uh, research at Oxford, 10 years, probably cost billions of dollars. They tend to do that. Uh, they thought homing pigeons used the Earth's magnetic field. But in reality, uh, outcome of this test, 10 years of research putting GPSs on birds, would you believe it or not, they found that they follow the roads, they turn at junctions, and they drive as if we would in a car. I mean, and what that, are they following? What are the, what are, what are the patterns? The patterns? Well, it said rather than just going, you know, straight north to point A to point oh, well, B, like we were assuming. I wonder what accounts for that, that they it's, make turns. Yeah, it says they would actually found that they were following roads. And when a road turned right or left, they would literally turn right or left at that point. And this is oh, a ten real real roads underneath them? Correct. About... Real roads. They said even though in some cases that added hundreds of extra miles to their trip, they found 10 years of research with GPSs that they followed the roads and turned to intersections. Now talk about Come being on. outside really? the box. Yeah, it was a it was a research project done in Oxford. Gee, I didn't know that. Well, what about well, obviously when they're over the ocean, something else is happening. Well, yeah, but it, that's just crazy because I always was under the assumption that it was the Earth's magnetic field. But uh, I just recently read this, and uh, I was I just couldn't believe it. You know, they Did followed. Did you by any chance come across anything? Because the last time I read the research, Rupert is wonderful about suggesting experiments that ordinary mortals can do and then sometimes he actually establishes some kind of database and he asks people to turn in their results mm -hmm. and one of the things that he wanted to go on with the homing pigeons and do because all the work that had been done to that point when I was watching that program which was a few years ago um, all the work that had been done 
the home remained the same, and what they were doing was manipulating the pigeons, doing you know odd things to Correct. them to throw them off course, so to speak. But they never did get thrown off. They always find home. And then the next thing that he wanted to do um, was move the home and see if they'd find the home when it wasn't where it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, did you read anything about that, whether that had been followed up on? I, I read some of that. Most of what I was reading into was uh, I, once I found out about this following the road stuff, I went off on that that tangent because that just blew my mind. I don't know if they actually did that where they moved the home. So uh, that would be another piece. I mean, well, it's already, right. it's well, already for well, our purposes. We've got our story, which is... Correct. Well, moving the home on a... Uh, a pigeon like that, I'm assuming, just means their roost or their cage, I'm guessing, is all they have to do, right? Do you know that? Well, yeah, whatever it is they came out of, you know, that they got to right. get back. But I mean, as I say, it's not it's not essential for what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what's outside this kind of observable, right. uh, manipulatable, repeatable, take apart and put back togetherable kind of way that science works. And that, you know, we're giving some testimony here to things that are very real and very... Um, you know, in some ways predictable, uh, right. but not not nowhere near satisfying the parameters of... Well, well like um, the, the pigeons, the scientific thing would be the Earth's magnetic field, which I grew up with. But after reading this thing, they're saying they're following the roads. You know, that's outside the box. That's that's way outside the box. More. Maybe your listeners know something, you know, that we, obviously we, we have to learn a little bit more about what the deal is with those pigeons but it's fascinating you know one of the things also that i uh, have been exposed to is this for whatever it doesn't explain the reason but it gets you somehow it got me anyway somehow more aware of the actuality of what occurs with these pigeons which is the analogy of a rubber band and if you think of the home at one end of the rubber band inside it and the pigeon at the other end and the rubber band is stretched, you know, it's an infinitely stretchable rubber band, but that's, you know, they're going to go back along that rubber band, however far it stretches. So I just, you know, that kind of made it more graphic to me to think about that. Obviously, it's just a metaphor, you know, analogy, metaphor, it's something, (laughs) but no real rubber band. But I I got that, yeah, oh, I see, I see. they're, They're connected to it somehow. But it's not by anything that we have, you know, scientific data about. There's a lot of animals like that. You always hear about uh, salmon go back to where they were born to spawn and things like that. I mean, think about that. You know, that that's that's an internal GPS. I mean, or something like that. Because how do they know? Or animals in the ocean always go back to one place to lay eggs. I, yeah, I think yeah, it was yeah. those I sea turtles or something. Yeah, yeah. These are all sort of similar things. But again, all of it beyond our somewhat comprehensible world as defined by science and the argument for redefining ourselves where science is not in as ascendant a position we don't want to throw it out we love science right we love all the good things it does for us but it, it it's limited you know it is its own uh universe and there are other universes and it's not the only it's not the be-all end-all one so you know all kinds of ramifications there. I know that also there's some been some movement for many years now, and I'm not really a you know hardcore science knowledgeable person, but I know there has been some movement now to within science to get the ascendant category of science changed from physics to biology, 
And I guess that would involve the difference between the mechanics of the universe, the every action demands an equal or what a reaction, you know, Correct. that kind of mechanistic universe, which physics tends to be about, to bi biology, which is the emergent universe, the developmental universe, the evolutionary universe. But apparently physics is the ground of being of science and uh, it, it certainly incorporates biology and includes biology, but it's not the most important science. And I know there has been some kind of movement to shift that over. So maybe again, maybe your listeners are smarter than I am and <laughs> can kick in somehow and write in and make comments and that tell would us be great. It, like I know. said before, though, it's it's very hard to get comments, as you know yourself from having a blog. Uh, people, well, you're invited. You listeners yeah. now, you get on that website and you make comments. You're under orders. Anyway. That's right. Yeah, right. Or you can, you know, write to me. You get on my blog. My blog is theconversation.org. I think it's linked to from Yeah, we have blog. the link on our site, too. Or your site, rather. Uh, and, you know, you can you can write to me. It says, contact Suzanne. That's me. I have no I have no walls between me and the universe. And no people. people. All right. I'm not famous enough yet to put up walls. Anyway, but I'm all about, you know, we should all be one humanity, and we should all be engaged with one another, and we should make it a better world, and... That's what the getting out of the limited box of science might do for us because the science separates us. It, it makes things cut, cut upable. Oh, I think I just invented that word. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we're after the kind of inter, interrelated world where emotions like compassion for each other are, you know, more important than the strict discipline of science, you know. Right. So, anyway, on to what we were talking, got together to talk about, which is, the work that Rupert Sheldrake has done on animals, um, not only dogs, but the dog one is the one that you know we might really uh, run down here and then make some mention of the others. The experiment that he did, he has um, one book that came out called Seven Experiments Can Change the World, and the dog is one chapter of it. And then he did a whole book, uh, not a big fat book, but a little book called Dogs Who Know When Their Masters Are Coming Home or some such. I'm close enough on the title there for government work, so to speak. And what he was talking about learning and, and, and discovering was this uncanny sense that dogs have that goes beyond this, something simplistic. And we'll talk about that. But as far as um, statistics that exist where he's done some surveying, you know, it's not the world's most official statistic, but in the surveying that he's done, he estimates that give or take, we're in the category of maybe 50% of dog owners, and he did it both in the United States and in Great Britain, who observed this kind of phenomenon with their dogs. And so noticing that there is a phenomenon where dogs have some relationship to awareness about the master coming home, he did a very, very extensive experiment, I guess you'd call it, survey experiment. It went on and on. I mean, it was a big deal with video cameras, with charts, with keeping records, whatever, of a particular dog, just to be able to document the you know underlying premise that he was working with or the observation that he was working with so you could really see how it worked out in action. Right. So the different kind of aspects of, of what he discovered was certain logical things would come up. Somehow or other, the dog knows that you come home at 6 o'clock right. every night at work. And that's more I mean, of a habit thing if you do that, but they know whatever, way beyond you know, that. Whatever that is, it's simple, or even that is like, oh, I wonder how they know that. 
But no, 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 that was not it. Because this particular dog and the way they ran this thing, the dog lived with the owner, which is a girl, and her parents. So they did all sorts of things whereby the girl was a traveler. She went to many different places and, and in many and in different vehicles. So all of the kind of things that would even be the strangeness of a regularity, you know, where she'd come home in the same vehicle or she'd come home uh, at the same time, all of that went out the window. That was not to, not to be. And then there was another little aspect of this that was rather fascinating. So if the, if the gal came home at whatever time, and even if she was in a different vehicle or whatever, they would have be have no, no, no. The gal came from different places that were further away, sometimes an hour and a half away, sometimes 10 minutes away. And what they observed with the dog was when the gal started turned to home, whenever that was, she's getting, okay, now I'm going home. That's when the dog started to wait. So rather, even if it was 15 minutes or an hour away, regardless, exactly. as soon as she had that home thought. So if you think, you know, oh, 10 minutes away, they can, she can hear the car or even, I don't know, something close enough to feel the vibration. <laughs> right. No, no, no. No, this was no matter where, far away. And then, they, you know, they did such things as the parents, the gal's parents with whom the dog was, you know, in, in the house with them. Just to eliminate the fact that maybe somehow the dog is psychically picking up what the parents know that the gal's coming home. No, they would do what the parents did not know when the gal was coming home, you know. Not that that in itself also wouldn't have been interesting. Right. The observations and the sixth sense along between, you know, uh, different parties and places. But no, no, there's something about the dog and the owner and the intention, wherever, however... They eliminated all the variables, you know, of, of the possibilities or, or the constants or whatever, you, all the ways in which you might, you know, raise questions about, oh, well, maybe it could be this or, oh, well, maybe it could be that. And there was nothing left. Uh, and the, the experimental work, if you got on Rupert Sheldrake's site, just Google Rupert Sheldrake, he has a, a, a paper that is long and has charts in it and it, it documents you know, and again, they had videographers, they were following the dog, they were following her, whatever. And, I mean, the dog was uncanny. Then that's just sort of a funny little wrinkle. There were a few times when the dog did not do this. The dog did not go to wait because there was a waiting spot, you know, by the window. That's where the dog went. And that was the time when there were female dogs in heat that were <laughs> in proximity. Preoccupied, yeah. So those times, the dog didn't pay attention to waiting. <laughs> Does he have a, a documentary out? You know, I saw one on either Science Channel or PBS all about that, and that's truly amazing. They even had the person stop like a block before their home and walk the last block to make sure it wasn't some sort of car noise. But that's the whole thing was about that. It was a documentary. Well, I hadn't seen that. I'd be interested in seeing that. I mean, if that does exist, I'd love to see it. But, yeah, they put the, this gal into different cars, you know, different sounds, you know. Right. And, and you're noticing walking, whatever, nothing. You know, every explanation, even though the explanations themselves would have been fascinating, but every explanation went, was, is out the window. There is no explanation other than some kind of sixth sense of uh, invisible connection in this sense of morphogenetic fieldness, like the whole universe or, or Earth, let's say, 
like there's a grid and everything's connected in it in some fashion and the things that are really similar or that have there's kind of the abstract of everything's interconnected but the particulars of things like rats learning something in you know one part of the world and turning up in another part of the world being more familiar with it you know there was something also in uh, world war ii that i recall reading this was rather famous in england and it had to do with birds i think they were called starlings and the birds learned somehow there was some kind of reason or 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 situation in which the bird learned to drink the cream from the top of the milk bottles they used to deliver milk first of all we had milk men the days gone by certainly the days of war when world war ii was uh you know happening the mid last uh, last century and we all had milkmen they all delivered milk in glass bottles and funny gosh i haven't thought about that for years yeah, they still did that when i was a kid too i remember that aluminum uh, milk box that sat outside the front door what a difference, boy, and not that much time for him. It's unthinkable now. But these starlings, if some corner of England learned to uh, drink that, that cream, and then it spread through the entire uh, UK, the, the starlings were drinking the cream. At... <laughs> hmm. Just another example. And that's the morphogenetic field hundredth monkey kind of thing, that when little behavior comes into play, a little pattern comes into play. That pattern all of a sudden spreads throughout the grid. Well, there's so much uh, proof that animals just know stuff, too. I mean, like you take a dog or something before a major earthquake. Recently, there was one caught on video. It was in the office. I forgot what quake it was, but, you know, they had surveillance in the office. And the dog got up and ran away like 30 seconds before the earthquake destroyed the building. You know, I think there's other uh, kinds of examples. I seem to recall that there was something about elephants with the tsunami. Oh, yeah, I, I think I heard that, too, or some sort of animal running away before it happened. Yeah, that they got to safe ground, and it was in some, I wonder if it was in advance of when, well, of course, when an earthquake starts, it's starting to vibrate way down, you know, in the guts. Yeah, that's true. Maybe they can feel the stuff the we can't core. even feel or hear it, perhaps. You know, we might we might employ these uh, critters all over the world to be our early warning beacons, you know, I, I wonder if they're, I bet they're working on that. I bet well, they, they have are. A, I mean, we've been doing that for ages, canaries and coal mines. I mean, that oh, goes that's way back. Right. Some of the other work, just to, you know, cover a few other bases that Ruben Sheldrake ha had done when he first came out with this idea of the dogs, then he became a kind of a focal point for animal stories. And so he was posting and printing and sharing some of these stories. Uh, one of them is a story about a bird, a particular bird, that was the pet of a guy named Robbie. And Robbie traveled a lot, not always. And again, Robbie had a family that the bird was with when Robbie was not traveling. And the family frequently didn't know when Robbie was coming home. He would just come and go. But they always did know because in advance of Robbie coming home, like a couple of days before Robbie would come home, this talking bird would call Robbie, Robbie, a few days before he came home, no matter when. Oh, that's wherever, cool. However, so go figure. That's before he came home, before he, I mean, you've got these dog situations where the masters turn toward home, wherever they are. Here, it's not even that. The, 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 the guy is out doing his life. At some point, he's going to come home, and the, the bird 
anticipates this. I mean, it gets it gets wilder and wilder. Really, I mean, it, it just blows your mind that these kind of things go on. Animals That's just what... seem more sensitive than us. They they I think they can tune into us is what it is. They actually hear us thinking time to go home. Whether it's a a bird, who knows? Maybe fish and frogs do it. We have no idea knowing, but it, we can tell dogs and cats do. But it might well, be all animals. They were tuning into us, but what does that even mean? It's so easy to say that, you know. Oh yeah, they tune into us. What? Yeah. <laughs> How do they do that? You know. Well, some people do, do that. Mean? I mean, you answer the phone before it rings, stuff like that. You know, people will do that too. So I think we all got it. It's just to what extent. But animals seem to have a lot more of it. Well, indeed. I mean, you can watch these animals and go, "Whoa, what's going on here in this world of this can't be?" But of course, this is our segment outside the box. Things that ostensibly can't be, but there they are. So it does, and of course, the value of this, just like the crop circles, you know, they're beautiful, they're lovely, they're. I, I love making movies about them, but it isn't about yay crop circles. It's about wait a minute, something more going on in this universe than you know is in our official kind of recognition of reality and in this official recognition we're so dangerous to one another we haven't got the right idea we've got this limited view in which the world is all about separation and domination and duality and what have you and you know when we wise up and we get smarter and open our minds to what's beyond the official stamp of approval of what's real, then we have a chance to rethink everything and rethink the dangerous ways that we have with one another and get a sense of, you know, the awesomeness of this universe that is so, I mean, science is awesome, but hey, there's more than that, you know. Well, science is becoming awesome. uh, better and better and we get, we're more advanced, but yet we're still a warring race. You know, we haven't expanded at all. We're still just a primitive, stupid, warring race. Well, that always blows me away, really ongoingly, that how can we be so stupid? We've, got, we've gotten so good technologically to where, you know, how many nuclear weapons are there all over the Earth that we could blow our, up the entire Earth many times over? Why? Why would we fortify ourselves that way? Why would we make that possible? That's ridiculous. Uh, well, like during the Cold War between Russia and the United States, they had enough nuclear weapons there to obliviate everything. What in heaven's name is the purpose of that? There's, that's a no-win situation. Well, exactly, and we are stupid enough to in indulge in it. And here, you know, to, have, to be a species that's capable of that kind of, technologically capable of that kind of annihilation, to still be settling our differences by killing each other, whoa! never adjust to that. I can never adjust to the fact that war is an acceptable modality. It's ordinary. No, what I was saying before is I think our, our like space brothers and sisters, alien life, watch us. We're, we're the Truman Show. They, they're watching Earth and just laughing at what stupid things these humans do. Well, you've just taken a line right out of my movie where we have a little, little line there where Michael Glickman says, we are the best soap opera on Alpha Centauri. And then he goes on to say, uh, and uh, they must be shrieking with laughter at how these humans behave toward one another. And then I say, and they must be scratching whatever passes for their heads wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, we, we might be the, a real reality show, Earth reality. We're like the best show on some other planet somewhere. They just really? love watching yeah. us. <laughs> well, I've sometimes thought that could be a sitcom. You know, they're watching Earth. From Oh, I shouldn't give it away. <laughs> oh, look at those silly people. You know, once we got 
humanity's attention, and I mean that, all of humanity would be paying attention if uh, it were announced by the official forces, you know, that, hey, we are being visited. And once that happens, all of a sudden, all of humanity is rethinking everything. And that's the milieu in which we really can open ourselves to much bigger, broader, you know, uh, considerations of what reality is and the one narrow view that we That have might had. be one the only way humanity gets together, actually, is if we another race interacts with us and says, hey, you know, kind of thumps us on the head and all of a sudden we like, whoa and actually start to behave. Well, we'll definitely, you know, pre- presuming it's uh, friendly, and the crop circles are just all about beauty and right. love. Well, if they're know. not friendly, we really don't have to worry. Yeah, right. They, they, could, they could take us out pretty fast. But presuming that they're friendly, indeed, this would really be, I mean, wouldn't this be delicious? Ah, all of a sudden, we have allies who are smarter than we are, who can help us solve our problems. Why would they do that if we don't even, you know, have any receptivity to the fact that they exist? We make fun of it, we whatever. But boy, if we were receptive and open to it, I'm just, you know, eager to see. That's well, true. what would they give us then? We're the top-rated intergalactic Truman Show. They don't want to ruin that. <laughs> oh well, well, that's one way to look at it. Right, right. There, there, there's some huge producer of some, I don't know, the space equivalent of Hollywood. Well, that's as long as we're funny, but, you know, the minute we start blowing up half the earth, I don't think we'd be so amusing even to them. So we need better solutions. So anyway, everybody should look up my movie, CropCircleMovie.com. You'll see my trailer. You'll learn a little bit about it. you buy my DVD. It's a wonderful a movie. Anyway, excellent movie. Really, people love this movie. Okay, we'll talk to you next week then. Thanks, Emil. Oh, no problem. Bye now. All right, that was Suzanne Taylor's Outside the Box, only on Threshold Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Moranto and John Stevenson. And right now we have the one and only Michael Clean. Thanks for having me on, as always. No problem. What's going on with you? Well, uh, I got an interesting thing I'm doing this Friday. I'm going down to Peoria, actually, to be interviewed for a documentary about the Peoria State Hospital. Uh, it's called For the Incurable Insane. And uh, it's being done by this woman out of, um, I believe she's in California right now. And she's flying in just to do this. So it should be pretty exciting. That sounds pretty cool. You're always going here or there. I don't think you sit still anymore, do you? No. Well, it's kind of funny because I've only written a very little bit about the Peoria State Hospital. But people are always wanting me to comment about it. 
I actually have in uh, my book, Paranormal Illinois, there's a whole chapter about Mantino State Hospital. Nobody ever asked me about it. But huh. Peoria State Hospital, they want to know about. So is this a recent thing, or has it always been like this, you mean? Or just all of a sudden, you're just, like, famous? No, I think that this is pretty recent. Uh, two years ago, the Western Illinois Magazine did an article about Peoria State Hospital, and they contacted me to comment about it. Uh, so it's, it, it's I don't know, it's I guess it's a place that everybody is really curious about. That's cool. We have to actually go out to all these places you talk to. We'll have to go out with some equipment and actually do a little investigating. Instead of just you talking about it like normal, we'll actually go out with me and we'll investigate. I think that might be a nice little approach on some of this. Yeah, well, this place, it would be very difficult because uh, most of the hospital grounds are off-limits to people. I actually know the guy who owns the main building, the Bowen building, and I know the man who is uh, who owns it. And unfortunately, he was trying to raise money to restore the place, but uh, the, the state shut him down because there was asbestos in there. And he says that he could, if he was allowed to do a couple weekends of tours, he could pay to have the asbestos removed. But because they won't let him do it, he's just stuck there with this abandoned that, building. He can't remove the asbestos, you mean? Or they just won't let well, him he, use the building? He can't afford to remove it. But if he was able to open it for a couple of weekends, he could get enough uh, money from ticket sales and stuff to, to pay for the removal, uh, but they won't let him uh, have anybody in there. Well, that's ridiculous. A little asbestos, that's not going to hurt you for a weekend. I mean, yeah. Not as if you're uh, living in there. <laughs> My gosh, we. I mean, I'm serious. The older generation, asbestos was everywhere. So, you know, one little weekend or something for an event to raise money to clear it out really wouldn't hurt a thing, but you can't fight the state. Yeah. Well, they actually, I believe they had the mayor removed. Uh, it was a big dink over this, this one issue, which is really bizarre to me. I mean, you would think come out of left field. This guy didn't know what hit him. They actually went around and got the mayor booted out of office and elected a different guy in order to uh, to help further their cause along. But well, that's kind of strange. It's not like there might be something more to that. Yeah, I, but I'm not sure exactly what where it stands right now. But apparently, uh, this woman got permission to go and film there on the ground. She's interviewing me there at the Peoria State Hospital, and uh, so it should be interesting. Uh, she sent me this list of questions. It's very elaborate, and there's about maybe like 50 questions about everything that has to do with the place. And so I'm I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to answer all of them, but I'll, I'll try my best. You got to do your research. Yeah, well, I've I've been trying to hone up on on the place because I know the general stories. You know, there's always that old ghost story about uh, the old patient who who died, and everybody saw him at his own funeral. And there's uh, there's always the Janet. Yeah, and uh, but all the other accounts are very vague. You know, it's just like creepy feelings, cold spots, all the usual stuff that you hear about these places. Some of these places aren't even haunted at all. They're just old, but stories go on and on and on. I mean, you and I know that. We all, I think everyone knows that. It's just sometimes if it's old and creepy and somebody hears boo, it travels so quickly. Next thing you know, it's a haunted location. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, I can't imagine how many homeless people are living in there and stuff. So if you hear a strange sound down the hallway, I mean, it could be a homeless guy over there. Yeah, definitely. Know. But paranormal is big business nowadays. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have been trying to get into these places, and so 
uh, there's been a lot of opportunities for people to uh, conduct tours and to have events at these haunted places. And sometimes, as we were talking about earlier, sometimes people get a little bit carried away. Uh, I know I'm not going to go into very many specifics, but there's a very haunted cemetery in central Illinois. And uh, I know someone who is um, organizing events there to raise money to restore the cemetery and uh it's a very worthy cause you know i i'm totally right. in support of that but i think they're getting a little carried away now telling people that they can't go there even during the day and that someone will write down their license plate number and report them to the police And this is a public place you were telling me off air right, right. It's, I mean, it's, a, a, it's a public cemetery that should be open from dawn till dusk and you should right. be able to go in there you know i mean that's this what this person claims they're writing down like what are they doing with the license plate numbers they're writing down well, supposedly reporting it to the sheriff. I mean, it's not the person, it's the, right. the people who live next door to the cemetery. And uh, I guess they've had some problems now with the recent publicity. People are coming in there at night. But you, in my mind, I mean, you got to distinguish between the people who are there for mischief and the people who are just visiting. Correct. You can't just tell everybody that they can't come in there. You know, I mean, I know that you, you've had problems with that over yeah, I mean, Bachelor's Grove in the past. Experienced the exact same thing, carbon <laughs> copy, basically. But I'm not going into that either. But I mean, I, I know what you mean. And sometimes people just get—they get so involved. They have good intentions, but then they just get so weird on it. They get delusional, believe they own it. But, you know, that starts off with good intentions, and it just kind of goes off the deep end. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of sad. I mean, I guess it, it happens if something. Um, gets popular and Correct. the person isn't isn't used to the, having that kind of attention and everything and suddenly like they're the ones in the spotlight uh luckily there are people like us you know we've been in the spotlight so much it's uh it, <laughs> it was that sarcasm or <laughs> <laughs> i don't know anymore <laughs> well just because we were on wgn for what was it three and a half minutes or something yeah know, that doesn't make us like uh pros yet <laughs> I had some people after that aired who messaged me about Bachelor's Grove. Oh, really? And, uh, someone messaged me and said that they'd been studying it or something for like 20-some years, and I'd never heard of the guy before. And oh. I don't know what to say to people. I mean, it's it's not like I'm uh, a major advocate of the place or like know, you know everything about it. I think that you, you probably would be the one to go to with all this question. Yeah, you can forward stuff to me if I don't. If I don't know it, there's other places we can send people to. But, I mean, yeah, forward those things to me if you want to. If it pertains to Bachelor's Grove or, yeah, paranorm and, or paranormal in general. But, <laughs> I, like that other cemetery you're talking about, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> well, so if, you know, if any listeners have any questions about Bachelor's Grove, please contact John and do not <laughs> bother him. Even though we know Mike is the real expert. Yeah. That's why I brought you on the show, because I didn't know anything, and I had to bring you along to make me look good. Well, I do know... <laughs> I know a little bit about a lot of okay. but you know a lot about a couple of places. <laughs> yeah. So it balances out. You, you better stop while you're behind. <laughs> it, might well, be, it might be Michael Clean's last show up here. <laughs> well, back to the documentary about okay. stories. So what, what would you think is the right way to respond to something like that? Like if somebody is, gets it into their head that they are the gatekeeper of a certain place. It depends. If they're, if it's a rational person, you can discuss it with them. You know, just say, I believe you're, you know, overextending your bounds a bit. And, you know, it might work. But if they're irrational, you know, just completely off, there's nothing you can do but ignore them, basically. But, I mean, mm -hmm. you can try a logical 
approach and you know if they're not completely unhinged that generally will work well it's a shame that some of these places uh like peoria state hospital don't get cleaned up because the state or county or whoever drags their heels you know and cook county that's the way things are done well things are even worse downstate because a lot of times the local officials they just want to see the places disappear you know they don't even want to acknowledge their existence the old ostrich trick huh they stick their head in the ground nope it's not there no we don't have a cemetery there right well especially with these places like ashmore states for example until it was bought recently uh, and turned into a haunted house the county was just content to have it fall down i mean nobody talked about it no one cared about the place it just basically they were just waiting for the thing to fall over one night so but and i i spoke recently to someone with um it was some organization that does a top 10 list of most endangered landmarks in illinois have you done that list yet no there you go. It's already pre-done. <laughs> Just take it, change the order, and put your name on it. How about the top ten <laughs> most haunted, endangered places in Illinois? There you go. I already did that, though. I did the top ten most haunted, abandoned places. I lose track to them. I don't listen to them. <laughs> well, I, sh- I should have some new ones coming up as soon as I... Yeah, you're lacking. We haven't had any for a while. You know, I, I, I'm a perfectionist, so I'm trying to get good ones for you. We need the top ten... Well, listeners, you know, why don't you guys comment? Give, give Mike some suggestions. Top ten list pertaining to paranormal, and it can't be something I've seen. Yeah, well, I would really... I'd be interested in hearing people's suggestions. I know um, if you go on the website, trueillinoishaunts.com, there's a list of top ten lists I've already done and so if there's nothing on there you think it might be a good topic you know feel free to contact me i think i've done over a dozen of those lists so far yeah they've all been pretty good i mean there's no i've heard them all i think you've done them all on the show they were all really good oh yeah there's only so many top 10 things you can do well what's david letterman has no problem i mean well that's because he's not confined to haunted places in illinois Oh, that's true. Well, ex- expand it. Go to Indiana, go to Michigan, go to Wisconsin. Well, the website places. is The Legends and Lore of Illinois. Yeah, but you could make a new website, can't you? I could, I suppose. <laughs> and then open it up. See, we have a worldwide audience. Why hold yourself to Illinois? Hmm. How about yeah, the craziest I've, legends of Kentucky? I've thought about that. You know, I was thinking about writing a book on the folklore and ghost stories of the Midwest. Uh, but I, I just need to do the research. But I think it would be interesting, you know, uh, to look at all the different types of stories and kind of compare them from all the Midwestern states. Wouldn't be a good thing for a book is actually looking at local lore throughout the country. You know the 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 stories, the lore from every place. Everyone's got you know the the man with the hook on his hand. You know there's stories from different parts all over the country. I think it'd be interesting to get all those together and see all the different types of stories throughout the country. Yeah, yeah, certainly it would. Uh, there was actually a book written in the '80s called *The Vanishing Hitchhiker* uh, by Jan Harald Brunevand. And uh, he did that. Um, he took a couple of different types of stories and went around like the vanishing hitchhiker. Uh, he didn't talk about Resurrection Mary, or he mentioned her in the in the chapter. He talked about all these different stories from from like Arizona and Texas, and and they all had the same basic plot as the Resurrection Mary story. I wonder how many of these are actually true. I mean, you really got to wonder when you hear all these, if there's you know, how many. Resurrection, I, I believe, is true because I, I was born and raised in this area, and I saw the bent gates, the fingerprints, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That I tend to believe there's something too, but you know, a lot of these you got to wonder, is there anything to some of these? 
Well, I think sometimes what happens, like with Resurrection Mary, is that there's a ghost with certain behavior that matches this story and then the story kind of gets grafted on to the ghost and uh or vice versa you know so people get confused it's like that game of telephone that over the generations it changes right people you know people start saying that this folktale is the real story when in fact you know it might be a mix of the two these ghostly events plus the story well throughout time too it's you know your grandmother tells you the story about this and then you know when you're a grandmother, you tell your kids about it, and everyone has their own little twist to it. Generations down the line, it might not have anything to do with the original story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true as well. But maybe at some point, I mean, the story had to have an origin somewhere, you know. Something that specific didn't just crop up in a lot of different areas overnight. Have you, uh, how about Auxiliary Sable Cemetery in Morris? Have you ever heard anything about that, or... Yeah, I, I wrote an issue of the Legends in Lower Illinois about it. Did you? I must not have saw that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's a pretty cool place. That one is one that the police do not like people coming out there. No, I mean, as it, it should be. You shouldn't be out there at night right. because, I mean, there's people that go out there for good reasons, if you can call it good. But, I mean, there's a lot of troublemakers. So, I mean, you shouldn't go out there at night, period. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know what stories you've heard about the place, but it's supposed to be there's a ghost of a little girl there. The one that stands by the gate and doesn't let you out or something? Yeah. Yeah, that didn't happen for me. I stood there and I dared her. <laughs> she <laughs> never. But we got an EVP there that was quite amazing. In that tool shed that looks like a crypt. If that isn't the strangest storage building I ever saw in my life. Yeah, that's a cool place. That, that's not a crypt. You know that building in there? That That's just a storage building. Right. Why would you build a storage building with double steel doors that looks like a mausoleum from hell? <laughs> well, maybe they had extra stone laying around. I guess. Well, did you see how there's double doors on that, too? Uh-huh. It's a bomb proof or something. Well, I went inside that thing for like 45 minutes once in total dark, closing both doors with the recorders running, trying to get an EVP. Got nothing. It certainly uh, hasn't prevented anyone from going in there, obviously. Oh, no, that place is actually pretty busy. It's hard to find, though. My gosh, it's hard to find if you don't know where you're going. Yeah. I originally was brought there. Uh, I met someone on this. It was like an old paranormal social networking site. And uh, I just met this this girl out there and she took me to Oxable. And that was before I'd even heard anything about it on the internet. So yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. It's an interesting place. I've been there a few times. Well, what do you think is the most haunted place in Illinois? You've done all this research. What do you, I know, I know you said Bachelor's Grove too, but in your own personal view what's the place you think is the creepiest you'd never go out there oh i think i don't think i can answer that question because stumped you well you know someone asked me that before and i don't i don't really get scared when i go to these places to be honest now we can fix that <laughs> so <laughs> i see a challenge now <laughs> i can't i can't really say you know what's been the most haunted i mean i've i've hardly experienced anything when i've gone out to explore these places mm. there was one place though that gave me the creeps i'll tell you that uh when i was driving down to springfield was, was that the bar tour, when they said happy hours over <laughs> <laughs> No. Okay, I'm sorry. Although that is a terrifying event. I know, that that just puts a chill on your back. (laughs) Um, There's a place called the 400th Avenue Bridge, and it's out by Lincoln, Illinois. And I'm I'm telling you, when I went out there, uh, there was nobody around. 
for miles. There was not even a sound. And I was standing out there and I was like, man, I feel really alone. I was like, if something were to happen to me out here, there'd be no witnesses. I mean, that was one of the first times I've really felt like, you know, something bad was going to happen. That's that's a creepy feeling, too. Oh, yeah. And it's it's supposed to be this bridge where there was like a lynching or something and a cemetery is on a hill above the bridge. But there's really no stones left in the cemetery. There, There's like a couple of them that are flat down in the grass and you can barely see them. Man, people but, steal stones. Somewhere somebody has got the biggest ass collection of tombstones you've ever seen. Because <laughs> there are so many, I mean, Bachelor's Grove, everywhere. All these places, where are all these stones at? Yeah, I've, I've never met anyone in my life who uh, who's like, hey, come look at this gravestone. <laughs> I got yeah, the I know. Where, where are they at? You know, think about that. I'm serious. All these tombstones are stolen from all these places. Well, where the heck are they? Yeah. they got to be somewhere. Somewhere somebody's got this creepy base, and there's literally thousands of tombstones in it. Oh, man. Well, there was that uh, author in Russia. Did you you hear about that? Who? I, um, I don't think so. Oh, apparently they found, like, a couple dozen mummified women in his apartment. He'd been digging <laughs> them up and then, like, wrapping them up and stuff and leaving them in his apartment is weird well, you know they got those long boring winners there in russia yeah like, probably, you, need, you need a hobby <laughs> it probably really lends itself to kind of creepy things like that yeah to say the least speaking of creepy things munger road i just found out a friend of mine lives like five minutes away from that and he called me i didn't know he lived by there he's having creepy stuff happen in and around his house is there stuff supposed to be happening or i don't really know that much about that i've never been there yet is that whole well, area supposed to be haunted they all made a movie it? about it yeah i don't get out much well, is that I mean, whole the movie, area haunted I don't think though the movie's out yet but basically i mean it's it's one of those kind of crybaby bridge stories where the like a train hit this bus full of kids or something and the kids like push your car across oh, the river that's another one of those yeah but there's a lot of other stories like that whole forest preserve there is supposed to be filled with things there was like an abandoned house that uh people said like satanic rituals happened there and uh Supposedly, a train like derailed and smashed into this house and stuff. Is there, is there actual records of this stuff? I mean, there should be records if these things happen. I think that that was true. That I read somewhere that that actually happened. That there was a train accident, not the with the kids, thing? but with the train crashed into a house. Because where's that other place at that I've seen on TV a few times actually, where the uphill and the, the car always gets pushed over the tracks because the children died on the. Bus, there's but they, a, there's they a found out that's not true, like that. though. Right. Well, there's, there's, uh, I mean, it's a common legend. There's at least a dozen places in Illinois that have that story. <laughs> really? Yeah. So yeah, it's just that's a little ridiculous. There you go. The top ten dead children pushing car stories in Illinois. Well, <laughs> it's just like the Crybaby Bridge legend in Ohio. There's a whole website that that lists like 24 of them all throughout Ohio, all have the same stories, and they're all supposed to be haunted. Because. But uh, Munger Road, I'm thinking of re-releasing uh, the Legends in Lower Illinois next year, and Munger Road is one of the places I want to write about. Well, isn't Munger Road? I mean, like it's like another kind of Bachelor's Grove thing. It's really supposed to be haunted, though, right? I don't know. I mean, I've only heard about it recently. I've heard about it from so many different people, but I've never been there myself. And you being the historian expert on paranormal in Illinois, I thought, you know, you would have everything on it. No, I've been out there once to take pictures for my book, but uh, it's definitely a place I'm going to be doing more research on in the future. I'm going to be going out there probably within the next week or so. Oh, really? For, for my first time. How far you live out from that? You're in the Rockford area, right? Yeah, I live probably about an hour from there. 
have to let you know when I'm out that way. I'm actually going to be out that way for a whole weekend. So I'll go out there and get a hold of you and we can do a little segment from out there. Yeah, we'll definitely meet up there because I want to take more pictures from that area. <laughs> the last segment we ever do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll be talking live. What was that noise? I don't. Radio goes dead. <laughs> that would be amazing for ratings, though. You know, you, you just got to take one for the team. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I hope it's going to be you're the one that takes one for the team. <laughs> well, no, that's why, I bring you, that's why I bring you along. And all the movies, you know, there's always that one guy that always gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> why do you think I invite you to these things, my friend? Because <laughs> I'm great conversationalist. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> We're like, our last few talks have been, well, just like normal talks when you talk to people, except you don't have a martini in your hand, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Even though yeah, off, the air, off the air, Mike was talking about what a complete alcoholic he is. <laughs> I, you know, you, all, you need something to get through the, the hard times. Yeah, and especially you're getting older now. I mean, my gosh, you're what, 31 now, 30 now? Yeah, 30, and, you know, it's it's terrible. I mean, you're on the way down now. That's, I mean, you, you've reached the peak. You're sliding down now. Yeah, it's all downhill. Oh, my God, don't say that. <laughs> oh, so you got anything else for us, Mike? Have we said anything worth airing today? I think so. I think Okay, uh, just checking, we'll as long as you think it. so. <laughs> yes, this will be one of the more informative ones. Yeah, well, no, that's pretty much it. Uh, so hopefully that that uh, documentary about Peoria State Hospital will be coming out in, in the next uh, year or so. So when that's released, I'll post announcements about it, of course. That sounds good, then. Well, I guess that's it for this time, and I certainly hope that our listeners enjoyed this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, we'll talk to you later, Mike. All right, you're listening to the Threshold Radio. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. I got my head, but my head is unraveling. Can't keep control, can't keep track of where it's traveling. I got my heart, but my heart's no good. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. Tonight's local music that's being played is Evil Gin, which is my band, and War. Also, we hope you tune in next week on ufo-info.com, Sunday nights at 7.30. If you can't make that, we're on theedgeonair.com, 10 to 11 on Friday nights as well. See you next week.
this CEO. Zero tolerance. Yes, we back. After the Christ. This is for the people. We got the power. We got the power, the people, and gave it to some kindness. Uh, Assassinated Kennedy and gave it up to Johnson. Warren is our remedy, our strategy is bombing. Man, they just killed Osama bin Laden. We got the power, the people, why not be honest? The Constitution was signed by John Bannon and Thomas. Revolutionaries ride for us with honor. Why did we invest our power in Congress? Time to reinvest, take back what's ours. Instead of going to vote, I write down these bars. Inform the people how they trying to write out the God. Twist the whole picture from Christ to our law. I'm woe in the flesh, so I'ma write what I saw. People dying spiritually, cause they life ain't by law. You can see it physically, look at Tyra with it off. Cover girl, need somebody that's nice on the draw. Paint pictures of paint faces, the world like your art. Yeah, look good, but it took goods right apart. After the Christ, I redefined the light in the dark. Gave blind people sight and dumb people smart. It's the art that I live by. Didn't vote, he did die. It's a conspiracy to get rid of our empire, the Patriot Act, crossed the line using thin wires, tapping the phone, putting devices by your rim We got power, but like Donald Trump said, you've been fired. 100 unemployment jobs, you getting 10 higher. Self-made entrepreneur, yeah, I'm a brick slot. I can make something work out of nothing, just like look. We got power, the people, and we gave it the connive. People who number one code is just deny. Is the world worth your soul when you won't survive? Live then die by the swole of the money. We got the power, the powder is coming in soft. When they knock down the towers, it jumped in all off. Let me break down all the dough. The market is lost. They took our gold and gave us notes, and that was by law. FDR passed a bill that real money would cost. Then the contract disappeared off the money we tossed. It's irredeemable, and that was the importantest part. This a demon world, so now they important to mark. Set a beast for you to eat, so keep the Lord in your heart. So they can monitor every transaction that you pour through your car. How you peep out of your least beliefs, be with the stars. From the pentagrams to celebrities meeting in March. There's a plan to raise a devil tree to eat when we starve. All I spit is prophetic, see, believing in God. He gave us the power to tap an unbelievable charge. And they monopolize everything we can even to all. We got the power, so that mean every man is a boss. Our plan's to win, and every other plan is a loss. Our man's the man, and his man bled on the cross. This Mr. Sin through his skin, never a flaw. We got the power, and that we ain't coming up off. My ass created the calendars up under the stars. You let God manage you, nothing is hard. The CIA put a canister up under your car. Free will is the power that be touching us all. Did God put us here, or we coming from Mars? Evolution is a theory that be coming from y'all. If a sea was in space, who gave it its water? I can guarantee that it all came straight from the Father. Even y'all look for water when y'all looking for Mars. And when it comes to the light, God did all the spark. To get the knowledge I possess, you can't get it from Harvard. Or a supercomputer created by Benedict Arnold. Reaganomics and McDonald had us living with Ronald In an era where crack had niggas astounded From Memphis to Oakland where we living is mounded I'm grounded, my beliefs, true wisdom, I found it The least common denominator distributing ounces I'm counting all my thousands, I don't need an accountant It takes more faith to be capable of moving the mountain We got the power to swim like Michael Phelps when you drown it To fight back in worst times like when you surround it God is my king with no queen to be 
crowned it. Cause with his love, no material thing can amount with. Got the power to swim like Michael Phelps when you drown it. To fight back in worst times like when you surrounded. God is my king with no queen to be crowned it. Cause with his love, no material thing can amount with. Got the power to swim like Michael Phelps when you drown it. To fight back in worst times like when you surrounded. God is my king with no queen to be crowned it. Cause with his love, no material thing can amount with. Got the power to win no matter what the announcement. You scared taxes have you putting your faith in some clown men. The father's my savior by the son you allowed in. To so learn from the war like China do from the Shaolin. Whoa.